Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, from a different hotel room in Cleveland, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Now, I certainly would never complain about travel, and I don't want to really complain about Cleveland. I think that's a bad look for, you know, parachuting media, coastal right. elites to just sort of trash flyover uh, state Ohio. However, I do need to recount my experience uh, late last night at Cleveland Airport. It's almost 2 a.m. The Hertz rental car is about to be shutting down. The parking lot is an absolute graveyard. There's five customers and three vehicles. Andrew, I am very proud to announce that I was one of the three people left standing, (laughs) able to get a vehicle. The two other people, who knows what they had to do. I'm sorry. I did not look back. I was sprinting, carrying three bags of luggage. It was an out-and-out disaster. But the real disaster, Andrew, came when I woke up this morning and went around my hotel's parking lot trying to figure out which vehicle I had uh, obtained. Turns out I've got a four-row black minivan. So I think I'm now (laughs) officially like a camp counselor. I can take about 30 elementary school kids to a national park with me. So... If you or, you know, any of your 29 other friends want to come along, (laughs) I can handle all the transportation, no problem. That's fantastic. I love imagining you carting around the city in a gigantic minivan. See, these, these are the twists that come with doing things your own way. People don't know. The reason we're recording this in different places is because wherever we go... You insist on booking your own separate reservations so that you can get the points. I'm staying at the Media Hotel here, and I've been like going to and fro on NBA-sponsored transportation. But you do your own thing, and sometimes that leads you to a, a gigantic minivan in Cleveland. Look, look, I'm a reality-based person, and I'm an efficiency-based person, okay? I'm trying to just cap out my points and my miles, <laughs> and I also like to be located you know, central between wherever the arena is and then wherever I might want to go get my hour of meditation and reflection it just mm-hmm. so happened, unfortunately, that uh, you know my adherence, my strict adherence to these principles, uh, nearly led me to a death match at the Hertz parking lot in the middle of the night in Ohio. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we're both here. We're halfway through the finals, or maybe not. Maybe we're only a quarter way through the finals. Who knows? Um, actually, well, we're definitely we're, more than a quarter. We're not a quarter of the way because it's a best of seven series <laughs> <Right>. format. <laughs> Fair enough. But I am looking out the window at Lake Erie as we speak. And uh, I want to say before we get in into everything, I am truly touched by the number of people on Twitter who have reached out to alert me to Ty Lu's comments regarding Rodney Hood possibly playing in game three we'll have to wait and see but it it has been a hell of a journey for all of us and i promise you ben that the rodney hood game is going to be worth it in the end i can't wait yeah well you got a lot of skin in this game andrew because you've been sort of (laughs) you've been shadow coaching the Cavs here for the last basically two weeks demanding rodney hood get some real run now it's going to come in game three of the finals Uh, We understand that this is a guy maybe who hasn't made his reputation uh, based on his ability to thrive under pressure. All eyes are going to be on him after Cleveland sort of made that (laughs) one of their main points during their uh, media availability 
uh, here today. Uh, are you are you convinced he's going to respond? I mean, you're you're the you're the hood whisperer. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm not feeling great about it, honestly. Of all the things to stake your professional reputation on, based on on Rodney Hood's performance thus far in Cleveland, there's not a lot of reason for optimism. But I am going to keep the faith, okay? And we and we are just going to wait and see. I've come too far to turn back now. Let's put okay. it that way. Okay, I've got a follow-up. So it's Tuesday night that we're recording this. Game three is on Wednesday. How many points does Rodney Hood have to score for you to demand an emergency podcast to celebrate on Wednesday night? <laughs> what's the over-under, 20 or no, 12? No, you know what's... 12? You know, I mean, <laughs> when, are you dis- when are you claiming victory here? It's a little sad. I think the number is like 18. If Rodney Hood goes off for 18 points in a Cavs win, we are unquestionably sitting down for like a 90-minute emergency pod after game three. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, we've already seen like the anatomy of the blunder, you know, people breaking down J.R. Smith's uh, game one mess up, you know, second by second. We saw anatomy of the block charge call uh, in game one. You know, what were the referees thinking? How did they get to their conclusion? Now you're going to have, you know, the anatomy of the Rodney Hood breakout where you go through each, you know, swished mid-range jumper one after the other, asking him what was going (laughs) through his mind as he saved Cleveland's season. I can't wait for this. Anatomy of the Rodney Hood resurrection. It is coming. But look, Ben, we, I don't know, we've we've done a lot of talk about, like, in-game specifics over the last few weeks, and I think we should talk a little bit about these finals. And You're then, bored. We can all hear what, it in your voice. You're bored. I, you don't want to do another well, X and O's podcast where we break look, down adjustments and counter Don't pin it on just me. Do not fit it on just me. I think a lot of people are bored. So let's do like 20 minutes or so, and then take it to a more global place down the stretch here. But first, we've got some questions. Ricky says, This year's finals reminds me a bit of the 95 finals between the Magic and Rockets. No, the Cavs aren't a young team, but in Game 1 of both 95 and these finals, missed three free throws led to a demoralizing loss, thanks J.R. Smith and Nick Anderson. And then there was a blowout in both Game 2s. If the similarities similarities continue, this series will be a painful sweep for the Cavs and LeBron. Um, and look, first of all, Freudian slip from Ricky there. It was George Hill who missed the free throws, not J.R. Smith. And that is a good excuse for me to get on my soapbox here for a second and say that J.R. Smith is taking entirely too much shit for the Game 1 loss. I think he was it was a it was a brain fart and it led to a lot of easy jokes on Twitter but it has gotten blown way out of proportion. There's no guarantee that they were going to get a bucket on that final play with the with three and a half seconds left. All I know is this Andrew, if I accidentally put the minivan in Lake Erie, just take a wrong turn, follow my Google Maps and just absolutely just dump it in the lake. I'm going to be sitting there talking to the cops, listening to the Hertz uh, insurance adjusters, you know, having all these bystanders call me this horrible person. What was he thinking? A terrible driver, so on and so forth. I can always count on you to say, guys, it wasn't that big of a mistake. Okay. Sometimes cars just end up in lakes. It happens. Don't worry about it. Everybody needs to move on and stop bagging on him. And no. I appreciate your commitment to always running the other way when the when the mob you know gets together. 
but I think we could agree it was one of the biggest mistakes in NBA Finals history. Can we at least agree on that? We can agree that it's going to be remembered that way, okay? There's no question that that is how history is being written, and that's fine. I, it's, I don't particularly care one way or the other. I just It's a point of fact that it was not guaranteed that they were going to get a bucket in that situation, and people are acting as if he turned down a wide-open layup because he thought they were winning, and that's not what it was. And like, no, to me, he, he ran up the aisle to the 200 level and bought popcorn <laughs> with two seconds left in the fourth quarter of a tied finals game. I mean, look, we have to hold him culpable here, Andrew. We don't need to. I, I agree. We don't need to carry this on a week after the fact or say, you know, this entire finals is going to come down to to that brain fart because there are a lot of different things that could have happened on that situation had he made a better decision. If he passes to LeBron uh, straight away, LeBron may or may not make that jumper. I would guess uh-huh. he would make it. Uh, if they had gotten the timeout, that's no guarantee they're going to you know, pull a, a Brad Stevens like, lob to Horford ATO out of their magic hat and, and walk off as winners. I mean, there's a lot of different things that could have happened. And J.R. Smith does deserve credit for getting that offensive rebound because right. that prevented them losing in regulation. But he still made an all-time blunder, and I don't think that you need to run away from that part of it. No, I, and I'm not running away from the fact that it was, like, n- number one, hilarious, and number two, monumentally embarrassing. I'm just saying he didn't lose them the game. He didn't win them the game, but he didn't lose them the game. And if you're looking at why they actually lost, to me, I think Ty Lue should be taking more heat for not taking a timeout in that situation. And then I, I like... It's 40% the George Hill missed free throw, and then 40% that awful video review 30 seconds earlier where they could, the Cavs could have taken control of the game at that point. And then I put it at like 20% J.R. Smith. How about, okay. how about we say that? No, I, I don't agree with that at all. Can you read this question from Morgan on this very subject in terms of did J.R. lose them the game? Because I think the aftermath, uh, you know, that time – uh, in between regulation and overtime was really telling. But what did, what did Morgan's question ask? Okay, uh, so Morgan says, watching the full uncut footage of the huddle following JR's monumental screw-up, what struck me what, what struck me most was the lack of coaching prior to the overtime. Not one coach or player in the huddle made any attempt to calm people down, get the squad united, or, God forbid, talk some strategy. What would you have said in a moment like that? Not nothing, right? And for people who don't know what Morgan is talking about, there's a clip on Twitter, which I'm sure most listeners have seen at this point, that show is just raw footage. It's like three minutes, there's no audio, and you're just watching the Cavs in that in their huddle between the end of the fourth quarter and overtime after that JR screw up at the end. Um, So what was your read on all of that? Well, I think the case for JR Smith losing them the game was that video right after the fact, just the emotional devastation uh, from LeBron James, the exhaustion, I think too, from LeBron James, he was not Mm -hmm. prepared to play another five minutes after, uh, you know, playing such a heavy load uh, during regulation. And if we had watched that clip like coming out of the commercial break during game one, I think everyone would have just immediately bet on the Warriors to win going away. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. Now, in terms of how do you rally the troops in that situation, I think 
in general, I agree with Tyloo's approach, which was give these guys space. And frankly, that could have been self-preservation. If you say the wrong thing to LeBron in that situation, you're probably worried about a Spreewell situation happening at that moment. (laughs) I mean, you really don't want to push people who are sort of broken over the edge. And I think also when someone screws up like that, you can't go pat J.R. Smith on the back and say, go get him next time. It's okay. Like that will also certainly be counterproductive in that moment. You just kind of have to let it marinate. They did bring it back together a little bit, you know, before they had to go out there. Uh, But I think they all knew. And that's unfortunate. LeBron was quizzed about that situation asking, you know, should he have done more to sort of pick up his teammates uh, in that moment, try to rally the troops a little bit. And he was like, hey, we're in the finals. What more picking up do you want me to do? Uh, I didn't love that line from LeBron. I mean, that got pretty close <coughs> to him basically admitting that he was a one-man team, and, and that's yeah. never great. Uh, but he's right. It's true. That is what happened. And I think he knew at that moment that he was going to be outlasted by Golden State. Yeah, and I... I have a complicated reaction to that because on the one hand, his his reaction in the moment is is perfectly rational. <laughs> I mean, he left everything on the court, played one of the five best LeBron games we've ever seen from him, and had it taken away by shady officiating and just like hilarious screw-ups from his teammates. So I don't blame him for feeling like that was it. And, and and particularly because the Warriors are just so good, and to to hang with that team for forty minute forty eight minutes with the Cavs roster is next to impossible, and they did it. And I think you didn't even have to see that clip to know going into overtime that Cleveland was completely screwed, but just because it's sort of a concession to reality. And uh, so I don't well, blame. But LeBron. once we did see it, it's amazing that it wasn't like forty five to zero in overtime. I mean, these guys were <laughs> yeah. ready to just lay down on the court. Well, and look, I, I said on the last podcast that I don't want to see the JR play again. And let me say, I really don't want to see that timeout raw footage ever again because that was just excruciating. I've, I've only seen it once. I, I don't think I could handle more than that. Uh, the best theory on that clip that I've heard came from Dan Lebetard, who is another person with complicated uh, feelings about LeBron. And he posited that LeBron knew all along that they had a timeout and he was just forcing Ty Lue to admit it to shame him for not calling one, which actually tracks pretty well with what what LeBron is about and what he's like the way he's always handled things because it's a little bit inconceivable to me that LeBron didn't know that he had a timeout on that final possession. Just just given what we know about his basketball IQ. And I could see him kind of putting the screws to Ty Lue in that moment. And I I would add that I don't blame any Cavs player for looking over at LeBron and being like, well, if he's responding that way, we are completely screwed. So some of the criticism for the body language is, like, I get where it's coming from. I don't know if I agree with it, but I understand it. Yeah, it was pretty interesting because LeBron has this, like, photographic memory, and it was like, the only options are either what you just described or JR's mistake like broke his brain and he had to like <laughs> yeah, totally. come back in halfway through to just be like just to double check about what had happened because he did motion for a timeout LeBron did and so right. I guess he was going through all these alternate scenarios of what if he had actually accidentally pulled a Chris Webber and 
you know, let Golden State win on the other end, but then he was trying to assure himself that that hadn't happened, and then all of a sudden he just exploded emotionally. It's compelling footage. I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I highly recommend going to see it. And actually, Andrew, I think you should go back and watch J.R. Smith's play a few more times because I think <laughs> the more the more often you watch it, the more ready you will be to just give him his share of the blame here and not say that he was only 20% of, of the problem. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll up it to 30%, but no more than that, okay? I just, I feel like the... the Everything has gotten blown out of proportion. The, the the final ninety seconds was a nightmare for a myriad of reasons. But um, how are you feeling about the series in general? Do you think? I mean, to go back to the first question, I would say the difference between the like the difference between this finals and that series with the ninety five Magic and Rockets is that I think Orlando was favored in that series coming in and definitely had the talent to win it, whereas the Cavs have always been pretty much screwed here. So if the series is a sweep, I don't think it's it's like a mental breakdown. I think that's just kind of, it was always on the table. And uh, all along we've been saying that getting a game off the Warriors was probably the best LeBron was going to do. What do, you, what do you see happening from here? Well, it reminds me of, frankly, the last couple of years, uh, you know, same situation, you know, down 2-0 coming back to Cleveland. It's sort of that make or break game three, right? Like if you come out and throw a big punch and everybody's hitting their three-point shots, the role players step up. Rodney Hood has his game. Kyle Korver finally gets loose. You know, Golden State can't quite match the urgency, uh, you know, Cleveland playing with their season on the line. LeBron has like a 40-point triple-double, then okay. Like, you know, this is going to be something that we're going to talk about. If it's like last year where they just can't kind of summon – you know, that level of energy, then, you know, this is going to end, you know, pretty quickly. So to me, you know, we're going to know one way or the other here in 24 hours, whether, uh, you know, basically everything that we're saying, you know, for the next week matters or not. I'm Mm -hmm. leaning towards it's probably not going to matter. I thought the big takeaway on the court from game two was Steph Curry and Kevin Durant finally striking the, the right balance, the proper balance in terms of, you know, their roles offensively. I think that the heavy switching in the Western Conference Finals had kind of thrown Golden State for some real loops. And I think what we saw uh, in Game 2 was KD making really aggressive, quick decisions, not overpassing, passing when he needed to, but then just attacking off the dribble to get to the basket or to really get you know nice, easy, close-in you know 8-foot shots instead of 18-foot shots. And that constant pummeling just set up Uh, Steph Curry you know he was slumping a little bit in the first three quarters but it set him up just perfectly for the the haymakers that he was throwing in the fourth quarter and Cleveland they really had no answer to Curry because they they, it wasn't like they could divert attention from Durant because he'd been you know basically scoring every single time he touched the ball but then once Curry gets going they can't you know divert extra attention to him because he just makes that easy slip pass to Durant for sort of a back-breaking dunk there mid- midway through the fourth quarter. And it was finally like this the, the proper interplay between Durant and Curry that had really been lacking for the last, I don't know, you know month or so, uh, really yeah. since uh, Curry com- coming back healthy, was on full display. And when those guys are clicking together like that, I don't know how you stop them. And I certainly don't, don't know how Cleveland's you know, defensive personnel stops them. Yeah, I mean... I agree with everything you said. You took a little bit of a passive aggressive shot at Steph struggling for the first three quarters. I don't oh, know if I would agree was. with that whatsoever. I think he was doing a great job setting the tempo 
and getting everyone else involved. And when he, he was he was like six for 18. I mean, we can't say that that was a good shooting performance for Steph for the first I, three quarters. If you're going to be reductive and say that his shooting decides exact uh, like how we feel about his game, then sure, then he was he was fine and not no, great. No, I just but said I think... he struggled with his shot. That's all I said. He wasn't shooting the ball well. He was out there. He wasn't really initiating most of the offense early in the game. They were playing through KD a lot. But the point was when he was ready to kind of like pick up and get going, it, the board was set there perfectly, and he he knocked him out. I mean, five straight threes in the, in the fourth quarter, one of them being a four-point play. He probably had three separate back-breaking threes before his back-breaking assist to Durant for the dunk. I mean, it was like pow, 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 pow. And, and right. you know, it doesn't take 48 minutes from Steph to do that. And all I'm saying is, you know, it all came in an eight-minute flurry, and that was that. Look, I just enjoy how quietly defensive you're getting. These, these have been a uh, trying couple of on. weeks for your boy Durant. And it's totally fair. I understand. I'll give you space, just like Ty Lu. I'll let you work through it. Um, no. Wait, wait what all... am I supposedly working through? The fact that KD <laughs> was better than Steph in game two? Uh, I, in all seriousness, um, what I what I liked about that Warriors win was we got to see them at their very best. I mean, everyone was hitting on all cylinders. And really, like... That's that's one of the th- the games that I wanted coming out of this series, like because because the Warriors could screw around and still win four games and win a title, but we got to see them kind of pushed enough to show us why they are going to end up winning three titles in four years here. Um, and they, you know, they did a lot of little things defensively to make LeBron's life tougher. And then there were guys like Sean Livingston. Clay showed up and played hurt and had 20 points. And, like, just everyone was great. Draymond was doing all the little things. And uh, and he's basically not shooting anymore, but he's still so effective as a passer that he's valuable on offense. And he was great on defense again, slowing down LeBron. So that's, that's kind of the Warriors' formula is, like, a team that is really smart and does all the little things and nails all that. And then you have Steph come in with the back-breaking threes. And it was it was sort of the ideal Warriors win in Game 2. And I'm glad we got a chance to see it. And I should add, Cleveland deserves credit for forcing Golden State to play that game. Because coming into Game 2, I was... I mean, I, I had my guard up for like a, a just dog-shit Cavs effort. Like, like the, after Game 1 and, and the way that ended, I really was nervous that they were just going to be totally checked out. And uh, and Golden State went up, I think, 9 or 10 early on, like in the, in the first five minutes of that game. But the Cavs kept fighting back and, and trying to chip chip into that lead. And, uh, and it forced the Warriors to play a solid, like, 48-minute game. And uh, it, it, was, it was fun to watch, albeit it got completely out of hand in the fourth quarter, and then we were just watching Steph. But uh, I was impressed with both teams in game two, weirdly. Yeah, I mean, LeBron was having to work a lot harder in game two, but he was still generating an awful lot of offense, both for himself and Love and you know some of their other supporting cast members. And I think if you're trying to sell hope to Cleveland, um, you know that that's where it starts. Is Golden State doesn't really have LeBron figured out here now. Andre Iguodala coming back, you know that could help, but they don't have some master plan like having KD and Draymond pick up LeBron, you know, near mid court and just try to wear him down possession after possession. 
is a really good strategy, but that's not like the LeBron rules, right? Like they haven't figured out some way to just like neutralize him. I mean, he's still getting, uh, you know, basically anywhere he wants on the court and you know, getting some really, really quality three-point looks for some of his teammates who just were not hitting them in game two. I mean, I thought given how slow Steph started, uh, that could have really been a game, you know, had mm-hmm. their guys shown up and hit some of those shots that LeBron was creating for them. It just didn't happen. And um, I wasn't uh, surprised to see it just kind of crumble there in the fourth quarter at all, because I just didn't think they had quite enough overall offensive continuity, Cleveland, uh, you know, to kind of keep pace uh, once Steph got going. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes like the Sean Livingston, two seconds on the shot clock hits a 16 foot mid-range jumper to to save the possession that it makes knowing that the Steph run is coming makes all the other little things that much more demoralizing yeah, and or makes that the, uh that David West corner three like his first three exactly since November. I mean it's like the first week of November is the last time he had a three-pointer that he hits that shot that's I mean that, that's a crusher too yeah, playing the Warriors would make me lose my mind. So I admire the way the Cavs are fighting. They just don't really have the horses, at least on the road. Because in Oracle, you know you're getting one game where things get out of hand and Golden State wins by 15 or 20. Like, that's just... We've seen that game a hundred different times over the last four years. Um, so, And that's another reason game one was so excruciating. Let me, I I have a question for you as a human, okay? So I'm going to need you to try to be a regular person here and give me like a a real take. Would you like it if if this series was just over in four and we can all move on? Uh, I don't really care about four or five just because I'm, you know, logistically, if I have to head back west, it's fine, you know? Like I think, you know, if this gets dragged out, I mean, if if it winds up being a real series, like Cleveland just takes commanding wins in games three and four at home, then great. I'm rooting for that. If Golden State just comes out, screws around, and, you know, they have like a 25 turnover game, and that winds up forcing us to a game six that we don't actually need to have, then I would be a little bit annoyed. But look, basketball is basketball. We don't have anything else to watch until Las Vegas Summer League. And, uh, you know, the quality of play and those gyms are a little bit lower than what we've seen so far uh, <laughs> in the NBA Finals. So I'm not, you know, rushing this uh, series out the door by any stretch because I still think we've got, uh, you know, storylines to, to look at. Not only is this Durant-Curry, uh, you know, pairing interesting to watch or, or Draymond's kind of thinking through his shooting selection, which has been interesting to watch. And some of these things have carryover effects into either this summer that free agency decisions uh, you know, or into next season as Golden State tries to keep this thing going, right? But also, like, on Cleveland sides, like Kyle Korver, for example, that was an interesting takeaway from practice uh, on Tuesday. I mean, Ty Lue is like, they switch everything. We can't get them open. Like, what are we supposed to do? You know, like, he was just kind of, like, throing his hands up. Like, no, we, we're not getting anything from Korver. They stay close to him every time LeBron drives, and they switch so aggressively on the perimeter that he's not able to get the looks that he can usually get. Uh, I thought it was a very kind of honest admission uh, from Ty Lue, and it's one of those situations where it's tricky to counter because you can't really have uh, Kyle Korver like cutting back door like five times to get all these right. like you know uh, you know high flying layups and reverse layups and dunks. I mean that's just not really his game, right? So uh, I will I want to see like in game three and game four does that continue? Are they able to sort of find ways to to crack Golden State's defense? Now, that's one thing I'm looking for, and obviously the hood the hood factor which we lead with because we're morons, but. <laughs> 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 that'll be interesting to watch too like 
my point here is there's enough basketball wrinkles that even though this is the fourth time they've played, and I know that's the refrain, oh, it's so boring, it's so boring. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not I'm not bored yet. Okay. Well, you did a good job giving me the regular human answer. You'll take five, but six will drive you insane. And then you kind of veered into basketball robot territory and try to get me excited about Kyle Korver versus the Warriors switches. And I'm not quite there yet, but I, I'm with you. I, I love San Francisco. It was my first time visiting. I went to a national park and lived the Ben Golliver life. Um, and you didn't go to I, a national park. Come on, stop I, fronting. You what? went to a you went to a city park. It wasn't okay, a national fine, park. Fine. Okay. Did you have I to pay an admission fee? Did you see any Rangers? Did you see any Bears? If you didn't see Rangers, know. Bears, or Lance pay Lance. admission. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I did not see I did not encounter any wildlife or park rangers, but it was a delightful afternoon and I, it was a great weekend in San Francisco, so I wouldn't mind going back. But I also have a buddy who's getting married this weekend back in DC. So if this ended in four I would be pretty pumped. And also, as a basketball fan, I'm really excited for the return of like the stupid, chaotic NBA and the the version of the league where we're not all constantly breaking down X's and O's. And uh, I feel like that's coming as soon as these finals end because yeah, God forbid things are going to get to- weird. God forbid we have to break down X's and O's when we could be discussing, you know, what you're going to wear to a wedding. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's fine. But uh, let's move on to a bigger picture question that we got from Byron, um, who says, watching the Warriors beat the Cavs is so depressing. Please, to help LeBron fans feel better, could you guys spend a couple minutes constructing a legit contender for the throw next year? Do you have any nominations, Ben? Yeah, LeBron to the Spurs, Andrew. We've been over this for 12 months. I mean, if you want to have matchups with Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, who would you prefer to have than Kawhi Leonard and DeJounte Murray? I mean, if you're LeBron. Isn't, I mean, they, these guys won almost 50 games without Kawhi Leonard. They have won almost as many games as Cleveland won with LeBron. You know, if he likes this whole Jeff Green thing, I'm sure we could arrange for Rudy Gay to just change his name to Jeff Green, you know, if, if that would make LeBron <laughs> feel more at home. I, I, I don't know. That, to me, is just the way to do it. So that's very funny because for people who haven't read it, uh, we did a group post on Sports Illustrated this week breaking down some of LeBron's various options this summer. And I was initially assigned to write the Spurs section and I got about a quarter of the way through on a flight last night and I just I didn't really believe it as it to be the best option and I was I was kind of struggling and then I landed and got a text message from you asking if you could take over the assignment so you went in deep on why LeBron should choose the Spurs and yeah I was uh, I was captain save a homie <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because I, I initially like agreed to it as sort of a challenge. And then I was like, oh, man, come on. He should not go to San Antonio. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not take this inside open floor joke too far. Um, but here's the thing. If you're selling San Antonio as the best LeBron option, and we're going to talk a lot of different LeBron options um, for, over the next 20 minutes. But 
if you're selling the Spurs, I think the way to do it is to say that LeBron has never been more beloved than he is in his current role as the superhero for this like overmatched Cavs team. And I think he could go to San Antonio and play a very similar role Yes, with much better role players, including Kawhi Leonard, who is a superstar, is a perennial MVP candidate when healthy, but is still seen as kind of like a workmanlike uh, cog in the machine. And I think that if you put LeBron in San Antonio with guys who are just better at all the little things than any of the Cavs have been over the last four years, he might be able to basically be like the Russell Westbrook, only he's surrounded by great pieces. And I mean, uh, What did we say? And you made this point. I'll give you full credit for it. You made this point at least six times in the run-up to the playoffs. You're like, San Antonio, their offense is just not good enough. They don't have that lead option to get it done. They've got all these supported guys, but they don't have the lead dog. You don't have to take them seriously. And I was in denial about it because I never want to bury the Spurs prematurely, right? Mm-hmm. Who would be that lead dog? LeBron James. He could have as many touches as he wants. He could play as many minutes as he wants. He could play as many games as he wants. But he'd also have the luxury, Andrew, of not having to play all 82 and leading the league in minutes. You know, San Antonio would never you know, be in a situation where they felt like they needed to have that. And I think Kawhi Leonard would be you know, overqualified as a second option, but still capable of doing it. The rest of those guys are all, you know, your typical three and D type players. Uh, you know, Patty Mills and, and Danny Green, those types of guys are going to look way better when they're just being spoon fed by LeBron rather than trying to do things by themselves. Right. Uh, I mean, you'd be looking at a team to me that would have a top five offense and a top five defense period. And LeBron wouldn't even have to do anything on defense, you know, because they've been covering up guys like Pau Gasol, you know, and, and still putting out elite defenses, year in and year out with their other pieces and just their overall system and discipline. So to me, like on the court, and I understand San Antonio, okay, that's not L.A., right? That might not be like, you know. uh, (laughs) It's really not. (laughs) It's really not. But it's not like, you know, King James and the Fresh Prince in in Philly either. Like it's lacking some of the mystique value uh, in terms of marketability and all that. It's not the hip new thing. Uh, you know, how many times can we see LeBron and, and Tim Duncan, you know, shake hands before a game, you know, solemnly? <laughs> you know, that's that's going to get old pretty quick. <laughs> You're not going to be selling sneakers off of that visual. I could guarantee it. But from a basketball fit standpoint, what the team needs, what LeBron brings to the table, and what he should be looking for here over the next three years in terms of managing his future uh, as he ages, it's a perfect fit. Okay. Um I'll grant you all that. And again, I sort of see it. And and I I want to believe and I really enjoy how much you believe. But I think that there are a couple reasons. The market thing is very real. And also, I don't know if I'm LeBron if I'm making this decision based on basketball because from a basketball <laughs> standpoint, if if Durant is staying in Golden State, like there's no viable solution to what the Warriors have out there and so I don't it's not that LeBron should wave the white flag but I would consider a lot of different things because look if he goes to San Antonio and like gives his life over to the monastery and spends nine months down there and then still loses in five or six games to Golden State like what was the point of any of it and then he's just stuck in San Antonio for the next few years and I think that would be rough I also think the basketball side of it the one question I really do have is like, 
he and, and LaMarcus Aldridge need to be in a lot of the same places on the court, and he would run into a lot of the same problems he's had with Kevin Love in Cleveland, where like some of what they're doing is redundant, and um, I'm sure Popovich would find ways to make it work regardless, but like I just don't know what you do with LaMarcus if LeBron joins that team. But yeah, I mean, you you do probably have to trade LaMarcus and just, you know, find a, you know, a cleaner fit. But I don't think Golden State going forward here is necessarily like uh, you know, undefeatable. You know, okay. I think they're going to be at like this level of good as long as they have Draymond playing like a top, you know, 5 defensive player in the league, right? If he slips a little bit more, the margin for error widens. It just does. Um, and you know, Houston you know, bless their hearts. They were an awesome team. Everything came together. They pushed Golden State really, really far. But I think if you put LeBron with Kawhi Leonard, isn't that a better core than Houston's core? I mean, just right off the top, like on paper, isn't that a tougher matchup for Golden State? And we're already seeing Iguodala. I mean, he can't even play uh, in the biggest games of the season because of his health issues. Those are going to be lingering going forward. And we've seen Golden State's depth exposed a little bit here in this postseason as well, where uh, you know, outside of like Livingston, their bench, you know, hasn't given them a ton, uh, you know, in, in big moments. So I don't think LeBron should be scared to go to the West or scared to to consider forming a super team like a squad in San Antonio, because I think that they're vulnerable next year. I mean, they're clearly going to be the favorites Golden State would be. But right. I don't think that the, the takeaway from this postseason is that they're undefeatable. I mean, they're so much more vulnerable this year than they were last year. That's fair. Can I add a nomination in terms of a Warriors challenger that I feel like has been kind of a joke, but I think we do have to think pretty seriously about what the Celtics can do against this team next year. And it, it just, they are the one team who have the the roster construction to hang with the Warriors at every position. And, uh, Kyrie is the one player who has caused Golden State all kinds of fits over the years. I mean, even go, going back to last year's finals, like they didn't have an answer for Kyrie in in, in most of those games. And uh, I think I I don't I've I am really ready to abandon my like three week sojourn as a Celtics fan. But they do have to be taken seriously next year. And I think if, if Boston makes it to June healthy and matches up with Golden State, it will be a much closer series than anything we've seen the last two years with, since Durant has, has been a warrior. And, uh, and then if, we're, if Byron asks us to construct a legit contender, I would say take Jason Tatum off that team, give him to the Pelicans, and put Anthony Davis in Boston and then I, I think the, the it's an even matchup at that point because Anthony Davis is just that good, and and so is Kyrie, and Hayward will be there. Like, it gets pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, you always want me to kind of extend outside of reality or my boring basketball nook or whatever you like to <laughs> call me. But you know what the funniest situation for this summer would be is if LeBron looked at what happens in Boston and is like, you know what? This reminds me a lot of Miami. They got a great front office. Uh, they got a great coach. Everybody's on the same page. Great discipline. I love the whole program. You know, uh, you know they've got some star you know, pieces ready to compliment me. And then he tried to force a trade to the Celtics. Like, who says no if LeBron says, I'll opt in, <laughs> but you have to trade me to Boston. And, and Boston's like, okay, well, who do you want back? And uh, Cleveland's like, we want Kyrie back. Like, who says no in that scenario? Because Kyrie, Kyrie doesn't have a no trade. 
uh, LeBron would be able to choose his destination. If you're Cleveland, can you do better uh, than Kyrie if you have to lose LeBron? Uh, and if you're Boston, you definitely trade uh, Kyrie for LeBron. You just do. I mean, anyone. Would, I don't right? know, man. I really don't. And it's it's very funny because every now and then we'll get emails about like LeBron to the Celtics. Why can't it work? And I my first reaction is it would be such a bad fit culturally like LeBron has gone on record talking about how much he hates Boston (laughs) and hates Celtics fans and that's even before I remember that Kyrie is there so like it's I think Boston is the only team in the NBA and Boston and the Warriors are the only two teams who would be like nah we're good we don't want to deal with your bullshit LeBron I I think Boston would take him and we know Golden State will take him they'll take everybody I mean Golden State's just you know halfway house for uh (laughs) franchise players but uh, I think you've got a point LeBron not wanting to go there, but that's why the, the idea of trading it for Kyrie is so perfect because it's not Kyrie's team anymore, right? That's like, true. It's, like, <laughs> it's LeBron's revenge. Like, oh, you want to leave me and like go get your own team? I'm going to go take the team from you. I mean, if you want to convince me that anyone's going to beat the Warriors next year in the finals, LeBron on the Celtics would really you know get me pretty excited. <laughs> it would also cause any sort of like – neutral observer of the NBA to just throw up their hands and be like, this league is just total bullshit at this point. This is the league of like Instagram beefs getting taken too far. Um, so I'm going to go check out college basketball. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Exactly. But look, let's keep it moving. I'm, I'm enjoying the LeBron conversation. But first, Ben, tell us about what's happening at B-dubs. At Buffalo Wild Wings, they'll admit that they often go overboard with their limited time offerings. Andrew, the Buffalo Wild Wings folks just can't help themselves. Take their new signature sampler. This is apps on apps on apps. Or actually, I heard a Canadian dialect, Andrew, they call them appies up there. So they got (laughs) appies on appies on appies. Now, for $15, Andrew, you can get wings and three shareable options like fried pickles or cheese curds. You're just getting a platter of fried stuff to shove into your mouth. Then there's also the aptly named over-the-top nachos. This is a literal mountain, a glacier of crispy tortilla chips loaded with your choice of pulled pork or honey barbecued grilled chicken, corn, jalapenos, and more. And you can top it off. With their new Platinum Margarita, you can go overboard today at Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports, the offers are available for a limited time and while supplies last. Please drink responsibly. Let's keep it moving, though, uh, because Jeff asks a good question here. He says, regardless of what they do from here on out with Colangelo, do you feel like the 76ers have already ruined their chances of signing LeBron? What do you think, Ben? Well, I mean, it's amazing the the news that has come out of Philadelphia, the counter-programming in the wake of the Brian Colangelo fiasco. I mean, first they give Brett Brown the contract extension. Then they announced that uh, Monty Williams is going to go there to be uh, an assistant coach. I was co- kind of hoping, Andrew, you and I would get – signed to a contract that we didn't even know we had signed (laughs) so just so they could like throw some more news uh into the you know the feeder machine to kind of distract people 
uh, you know, I'm not sure about LeBron to Philadelphia. I mean, once things shake out, can we focus on the fact that things need to shake out? How is he still employed, Andrew? It's a very good question, and I would add that it would delight me to no end if the 76ers came to us and and offered us the chance to be the official podcasters of the Philadelphia 76ers. I think that would really, truly make me an enemy for life of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcasts. So, Josh Harris, if you're listening, I am available and willing. I'm ready to talk myself into Ben Simmons over the next 10 years. The Colangelo thing, though, I really don't get it because not only do we have enough evidence that like his long-term employment is clearly untenable at this point, but with Trump coming out and pulling this stunt with the Eagles this week, like this is the perfect, you talked about counter-programming, <laughs> like this is the perfect time to just kind of slip under the radar and be like, yep, we fired Colangelo. Everyone knows why. It's time to move on. We're going to go court free agents this summer. And look, like they would still catch a lot of heat. It'd still be a big story. But like this is the week in Philadelphia to try and slip some news through. And maybe by the time this runs on Wednesday, it'll happen. But uh, I don't know. I, I like there's There's certainly something to be said for allowing a professional investigation to play out. I think they hired Davis Polk um, and like they, I, I get it. I, I understand that there are, are procedures well, that have Andrew, to be followed. I mean, you're saying these procedures, what do they involve? A bunch of like high priced lawyers going into a boardroom meeting with Joel Embiid? <laughs> and checking NBA and then, Reddit? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And then, then just reading face to face Joel Embiid, all the slanderous tweets that have been thrown out there. Like, hey, you're a baby, Joel. How does that make you feel? Like, what, <laughs> Is this the investigation? I mean, come on. We know, we know the damage that's been done. It's not... Uh, that complicated there's not a lot, a lot a lot of layers to it well what i heard is that they are investigating all theories and that it, they are open to the possibility that it is not as simple as it appears online given some of the sleuthing that has already taken place among fans and uh do you think so- they're trying to just buy time so jerry colangelo can have another son and hire him? <laughs> perhaps that's definitely the best theory i've heard uh, look, going forward, though, I think I, I don't think that this will affect their chances of signing LeBron because LeBron is in such a unique place that I think he's it, like he wasn't coming to the Sixers because of the stability that Brian Colangelo provided to the organization. I think if anything, he was coming because like Colangelo was already kind of a, a lame duck who was going to do whatever he asked. And uh, I'm sure that whoever they replace him with will probably take a similar tact once it's time to talk to, to LeBron. But if this is, having said that, this is the worst possible time for the Sixers to be without a GM. Because even if they don't get LeBron, this is like a massive, massive summer for them. It's it's something they've been planning for for years. And they like... They need to get some superstar. They've they've saved max cap space for exactly that reason. And if they don't get that, they still need to, to try to bring back Redick and, and Bellinelli and, and some of the guys who, who kind of keyed their surge down the stretch this year. And so there are a ton of balls. And they also have a, the 10th pick in the, in the draft. There are a lot of balls in the air. And they need to have someone in charge. So I, it's, it's shocking to me that it's gone on as long as it has. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately the deciding factors for the superstars are going to be do they want to play with Simmons and Embiid? Do they mm-hmm. feel like they're exactly. going to be fits there? Um, and, you know, who is writing the tweets or deleting the tweets or opening the printer accounts or whatever and, you know, managing the organization is going to be a secondary, um, you know, factor for, for those A-list level guys. So I guess it kind of comes down to, like, for the Paul Georges and the LeBrons of the world, are those guys uh, good enough at this point? Are they, you know, like rock solid building block type players where you don't have any questions about possible fit? And I'm still not quite there yet, Andrew. You know, I think we raised some questions about LeBron's fit in Philadelphia in terms of, you know, he wants to always have the ball. So what does that mean for Simmons? Simmons always wants to have the ball. What does that mean for LeBron? And then how well do they all fit kind of personality wise with Embiid? Uh, I mean, obviously if you get the chance to do it, you do it. Uh, But I don't think it's like just a no brainer. Uh, and so I think, you know, something like this, you know, does it wind up being a tiebreaker? Does it wind up maybe being a little bit of a turnoff? Yeah, that wouldn't uh, surprise me, given that there were already some fundamental questions, uh, you know, sort of up front. Well, and what's interesting, and this is where it is, it's, again, important to have a general manager, um, is I think one of the things that could tip the scales in Philly's favor is if they're able to execute a like a Kawhi trade a week before free agency leading up to the draft I think that would be a huge chip to play and and then suddenly you're coming to LeBron and say, instead of saying do you want to trust the next three or four years of your career to Joel Embiid and, and Ben Simmons you're saying do you want to come to Philly and create a a real life version of the Monstars and go beat the Warriors by just being twice as big and beating the crap out of them and I think that's kind of a compelling case to sell to him but it's going to take some real skill to have have those pieces fall into place and um i don't know it's it's not looking great and and the colangelo thing it's funny because on the last podcast i was kind of giving you crap about acting as if colangelo was the one writing those tweets and uh and that was because like the past few days, it had become clear that it was his wife writing most of them. And since that podcast, now there are certain tweets where it was 100% not his wife. I don't know if it was Colangelo writing them, but like somebody, I, I saw one where he was making an allusion to um, Mark Aguirre and the trade from the Mavericks to the Pistons and like just a deep cut that only a, a basketball lifer would be capable of, of drawing on. And uh, so th- if you if you want to go deep into the Colangelo saga, rest assured it continues to be incredibly weird. And like I've gotten lost in that wormhole a couple different times over the last week. Yeah, your empathy knows no bounds. First J.R. Smith's off the hook, now Brian Colangelo, who obviously <laughs> wrote these tweets. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> allegedly but obviously wrote these some of these tweets and you're just like well maybe like he didn't include his social security number so it might not be him. Okay. cool Andrew. it turns hey, out no it turns out that colangelo and his wife were co-operating these burners they were like the mr and mrs smith of burner accounts well i think the the real winner or not i guess the a, the number one winner but like kind of a tangential winner would be austin rivers because i think he's now got nepotism immunity for like the rest of his career <laughs> because he actually turned into a real player after his dad traded for you know jerry resurrects bride's career and this is how he's repaid you know by this family feuding on the twitter accounts i mean it's uh not great 
It's not great. <laughs> that's that's the number one takeaway for all of us. Um, oh, and by the way, like you were saying earlier, oh yeah, you're available to sign up and do a podcast for them. You'll you'll start cheering for Ben Simmons. But would you really? I mean, isn't the stink around this enough <laughs> that even you would think twice? I mean. Like this is a, it's almost radioactive, I mean, to a certain degree. I don't know. It would depend on what they're willing to pay, but I really would do it strictly to troll Spike and Mike and that, that faction of insane Sixers fans. I think it would be pretty hilarious. And honestly, over time, I've come to like like 90% of them. So, I, again, I'm willing to take the call if if Josh Harris is willing to make it. Well, I'm really glad that we're sponsored by LinkedIn, Andrew, because it sounds like you're doing some pretty aggressive campaigning. The real question is, are you willing to leave behind like perfect Playa del Rey and move to Philly and, and hunker down with me out there? Look, I, I can't. I'm too much of a reality-based person to even uh, <laughs> to even like think through this, but... My first thought would be, I don't want to deal with any of that. That sounds like nonsense, you know. If I'm LeBron or if I'm Paul George and the Lakers are there as an option or, you know, the Celtics, like we mentioned, maybe for Paul George or someone, uh, the Spurs, I mean, all these teams, these guys have their pick of 30 destinations. To me, the Brian Colangelo thing is enough where you're just sort of like, nah, I'm good. You know, let somebody else deal with that. That's very fair. I would would add, though, that, you know – if you go back to 2014, the Cavs were not exactly like the most functional organization in the NBA at that point. And they had literally, the only reason they were in a position to trade for Kevin Love is because they had screwed up the rebuild so badly and, and had just like, it had been so disastrous. Remember they, they rehired Mike Brown, which is just incredible. Like, I think like strictly just to fire him again. And then they had <laughs> pu- pu- punches in the locker room, you know, allegedly exactly. between Kyrie and Dion Waiters. I mean, they took Anthony Bennett with the number one pick, a decision that doesn't get nearly enough attention. But I think the point from that, Andrew, was that LeBron was completely insane to go back there in 2014. <laughs> and he's so good that he turned an insane decision into a completely defensible, insane one. Yeah. Uh, you know, thanks to his incredible performance at the 2016 finals. But that was a completely insane decision. Uh, my only point is that dysfunction has never been a deal breaker for Braun. Um, but we'll see. Oh, He's excited. He's like, let me get some of those collars. <laughs> like, let me get some. <laughs> let me get some of those big fat collars to go with my suit shorts. Let's rock this out. Exactly. Yeah. I'm installing six friends to run this team. Um, moving forward, though, let's talk about the future of the sport. Ben Emray sent us a very long and thorough email about the preponderance of one five switching. Um, one through five switching and and the iso ball that ensues um, and it, I'm not gonna I'm trying to summarize a 2,000 word email here but what he says at the very end is do you guys expect other teams to go the Houston Boston route and get eight six nine guys after seeing the Warriors falter ever so ever so slightly in that Houston series. Should we expect a more isolation-oriented league in the near future due to the rise of these defenses? So I'll let you start. What do you think? Where are you at with all the isolation that we've seen in these playoffs? 
Well, let me summarize by saying, Emery, thank you for such a thoughtful, detailed, extended email. If anyone else has uh, detailed, thoughtful emails, go ahead and send them to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. I mean, I think this is the way you're going to have to defend uh, the Warriors. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure the Warriors are going to be around forever. But I also think that the switching technique, it proved to be quite effective uh, against Houston, you know, their offense. It, mm-hmm. you know, at least it was the best option available. It proved effective against LeBron James at times during this finals, even though he's been sensational. And I think uh, it would be how you would want to play Boston once they have all their guys back healthy. I mean, you're really not going to have much of a choice. So I think at the very highest level in the playoffs, this is going to become the next evolution here for you know the foreseeable future, the next two or three years. There's enough teams that have accumulated enough talented pieces where that's how it's going to be played sort of in that conference final stage or maybe even the second round. Uh, you know, once the adjustments really come through and everyone has to play, you know, like in sixth gear. But I don't think there's enough talented players out there for this to sort of become the new wave for the entire league. It's sort yeah. of how... You know, when Draymond first rose to the occasion, it was like, oh, we all have to get a player like him. And then <laughs> people realized, like, wait a minute, we've got Jonas Valanciunas or we've got Nurkic or we've got, you know, whatever other center. We're never going to be able to have him mimic what Draymond does. So at some point you have to sacrifice and decide you're not going to play that way. Uh, I think that's going to be the problem. It takes multiple years to accumulate, you know, that volume of you know six eight guys like Boston's a perfect example. How long is it going to take them to accumulate you know a full lineup full of these guys? It's going to take multiple trades, a major free agent signing uh, in Gordon Hayward, and then some really good uh, lottery picks where they targeted guys and and other people thought oh maybe they'll be good, maybe they won't be, and they kind of hit home runs on on Brown and Tatum right. So right. that's an extended process. Like if you're the Orlando Magic or the Phoenix Suns or whatever team we make fun of and you're trying to play like completely switchable defense uh, and you're just starting this summer, you know, good luck. It's going to take you probably at least two seasons to even get enough guys accumulated to be able to do it. Yeah, I think you hit on the uh, the crucial point is that there are maybe like 10 to 15 guys in the entire league who really excel at this style and are, and are perfectly suited to play it. And it just so happens that like, half of that group are collected on two or three teams right now. Boston and Golden State specifically. And then you've also got LeBron, who's kind of like the prototype for everything. And then you've got Houston, who who went out and got P.J. Tucker and has had Trevor Ariza. So they've got kind of like the poor man's version of the wings that you want. And, um, I, you know, like... My friend Danny Chow at The Ringer had an interesting column that I read earlier uh, before the practices today, and I had written something similar a few years ago before the draft with Carl Towns and Porzingis and Miles Turner, but Danny was looking at the the draft this year, um, which it looks like there are going to be four four big men taken somewhere in the top five or six picks, and he articulated the point that I was sort of alluding to um, a couple years ago, which is basically that the NBA is always going to adapt to like the shape and size of the most genetically ridiculous players. Um, and right now, it's guys like LeBron and Draymond. But once the Warriors fade, I, I really believe that the NBA is going to belong to whichever team 
finds a way to get Anthony Davis. And at that point, if you're dealing with Anthony Davis in the playoffs, every contender is going to need a unicorn big to track them all over the court and, and counter them. And I, I, so the idea, I understand why someone would watch these playoffs and say every team in the future is going to, is going to want to have like four guys out there who are six, eight and one scoring point guard. But I think it's going to shake out a little differently because you've got guys like Cat and you've got guys like Porzingis who are like poised to be kind of the centerpiece of contenders. Maybe not Porzingis because he's stuck with the Knicks, but like they're going to be factors for the next decade and I, and it's going to shape the way this looks. Yeah, I mean, and when you look at it's not just the, you know, the, the physical genetic stuff that you're talking about. It's also the skill sets too and like the evolution strategically, right? Like so much of why teams feel the need to switch is because Steph can bomb from 30 foot off one leg right. over Kevin Love at the end of the shot clock and swish it, right? And so you have to have five guys capable of taking away that skill from him. And Harden can take a, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump step back from 35 and, and nail it right in your face unless you have a defender who can press up on him and not foul him, right? So I think it's some of the skill evolution too in addition to the genetics. And, uh, you know, so from that standpoint, um, you know, I think you can kind of reach the same conclusion, though. I mean, you're still going to need to be able to rebound no matter how small the game gets. Yeah. And we're even seeing a guy like, you know, Kevin Durant, who's the tallest, longest guy on the court during the finals, and he's getting killed at times because, you know, he's not rebounding aggressively enough. I, mean, I thought he was a lot better in game two, but, you know, certainly giving up that big offensive rebound to J.R. Smith uh, in that moment was a play worthy of criticism. But then you step back and remember, he came into the NBA as a two guard. <laughs> like, he's not a center. <laughs> you know, he, he might totally. look like it now. Uh, so there will be evolutions. But, and I, I, uh, the other thing that I would add is, like, Draymond is amazing defensively. And it's been fun to watch him kind of get back to that level in these playoffs. But there are only a, a couple guys I've ever seen, like, really get the best of him and, and and make him struggle on both ends and the players are all fit the same type. I've seen I've seen Cat dominate him. I've seen Anthony Davis dominate him and I've also seen Draymond kind of like get the best of uh Anthony Davis in in some other games, but like Cat, Anthony Davis, Durant when he was on the Thunder and Giannis on the Bucks have always been able to give Draymond problems and so like that player type is going to be a, a factor going forward it just it just so happens that like most of those guys are, are on crappy teams right now and and yeah, I was going to say those guys have combined to win one playoff series and it happened against this year's Blazers and so that's kind of why I want to see it and I guess my point on the skill versus the genetics aspect was we need to see these teams finding a way to take away the three-pointers in volume and forcing teams to go back to either isolations or post-ups or, you know, the mid-range stuff. Like, you know, Golden State's done a lot more mid-range this year as a counter than they have in previous years. We need to see that evolution play out because I think we're still firmly in the middle of this three-point evolution. And as long as we're there, I think even big guys who can shoot the threes are not going to be as valuable as the lead ball handlers who can run the offense and shoot the threes, right? Like Steph, yeah. Harden. Uh, KD, LeBron, I mean, all those guys fit the bill, and those are basically the four, the four best players in the league in some order, right? So um, I, I hear what you're saying. It may be coming, but I'm not totally convinced that that's the natural next step here, given how far the strategy has kind of uh, warped towards three-point shooting. And I think that you are right, and I am mainly speaking from the heart 
and just desperately want some variety at the top of the league because it, to people who are rolling their eyes and and looking at these teams, all of whom kind of play the exact same way and all of whom have reverted to seeking out mismatches and playing iso ball in the playoffs. Uh, even the Warriors were doing that for a, a long stretch there. Like, it's not the, the most aesthetically pleasing style. Once you pick up the pattern, it's just like, oh, shit, okay, so they're going to do this, they're going to do this, and it's just... It's, it's not great. So I, I hope that we get to a point where things start to be a little bit more chaotic and you introduce some seven-footers who can, who can change everything. Maybe that's Embiid, too. But you're probably right is the bottom line. Yeah, and these guys are doing it differently, too. I mean, Houston and Golden State, they didn't run identical offenses. I mean, if anything, Houston was kind of the anti-Golden State in terms of how much they did the isolation stuff. And I think that will be one... Uh, you know, potential benefit of the all switching stuff is if you can force teams to go to isolation on the perimeter and they don't have guys who are as good as Harden, that should throw a lot of teams for loops. And it should take away like, you know, the 2015 Hawks who you always love holding up and mocking, right? Like teams who are sort of trying to be the next version of that group where like you don't have any true A-list stars, but you have a lot of very good players and you try to be, you know, kind of play above your uh, you know, above your potential through group effort. Like right. this, what we've seen here this year is that switching hard and having a whole bunch of guys who can guard one through five will really basically short circuit that type of team. Yeah. Um, well, moving on to a more specific question for the future of the NBA. Dior says, how many challenges do you think NBA coaches should have per game and which NBA coach do you think would be the best flag tosser? And Ben, I don't even have a nomination for the best flag tosser. Maybe you do. I just, I really don't want this to happen. I feel like it should be pretty clear to the NBA that just doing the opposite of whatever the NFL is doing is like by far the best strategy for the next 10 years. And uh, I'm bummed out that this is even a possibility for people who didn't see at summer league this year, the NBA is going to experiment with a challenge flag that will allow teams to review foul calls and whatnot. (laughs) And I just like, I feel like we, we all just watched game one and realized why this is a stupid idea. And the fact that this is now like a real thing kind of freaks me out. Well, first of all, I think, you know, the new Bucks coach, Mike Budenholzer, would be the first coach to get ejected for throwing his challenge flag and hitting a ref. There's no (laughs) doubt. (laughs) In a fit of rage, he would do that. Uh, What if we just, instead of having challenge flags, if we cleaned up this whole, like, trying to get a a tough timeout late in a loud arena, what if coaches had little buzzers? They could, like... They could push the buzzer and it would like vibrate on the referee's belt and sort of like shake, you know, and then he would realize, okay, now it's time to give a timeout. You know, that might be a, a more practical solution to what's been a pretty common problem in these playoffs where, you know, teams can't get timeouts when they want them. Uh, I think you should be able to get one regardless of whether there's five seconds left in a game and it's super loud. In terms of the challenge stuff, guys, like the replays are creating as many or more problems exactly. than not having the replays putting the challenges on top and then allowing us all to analyze whether or not it was a good challenge where they should have saved the challenge. Oh man, can you believe Ty Lue wasted his challenge or whenever in the third <laughs> quarter? 
I don't want to have those arguments. Uh, and then I, we have like Steve Javi popping up in the corner of the screen being like, you need overwhelming evidence to overturn this foul call. Like, I hate yeah. the NFL for all these reasons. I don't want it to happen to basketball now. Yeah, I mean, I don't even want it to ruin Summer League, frankly. Like, Summer League's crazy <laughs> enough as it is when it goes to overtime. They have all these rules where it's like sudden death. Can you imagine a coach throwing a challenge flag during sudden death overtime at Summer League? I mean, everybody would just get up and leave. So I hope that doesn't happen. It would be terrible. And also, while we are airing grievances, um, I addressed this on the last podcast at the very end. I addressed it pretty profanely. But I really do have an issue with the new NBA Finals logo and mainly the abandonment of the old logo, which was perfect. You and I talked about it like two months ago at the beginning of the playoffs that the little finals trophy on the court is is like part of the moment it's, it in this series it would have been one of the only things that's actually cool about Cavs Warriors 4 and I, I don't understand why they've done away with it yeah I don't even want to call what they have right now a logo it's just sort exactly. of blocky it, it, there's no design element to it I mean I I feel like it was a leftover like a cutting room floor type design so I'm just in denial about it, Andrew. The finals logo is still the finals logo in my book. The NBA will figure it out eventually. They'll bring back the script F. And uh, until then, I'm not even going to acknowledge the new one. <laughs> Good. I think that's the best approach. Um, let's move on to two final questions here, uh, both of which involve our old friend, Coffee Shop Kyrie. First from Vincent, who says, Hey, guys. I've been really bothered by the lack of consistency in the media with people arguing on one hand that the Boston Celtics would have been better with Kyrie. No doubt this is true. And also that the Cavaliers lost the Kyrie trade and would have been better with Kyrie as well. What bothers me is this. A healthy Kyrie Irving was not in the cards for either team, regardless of the trade. Ben is always saying that the greatest ability is availability. Boston had better get used to periodic injuries as there have been many seasons where Kyrie played 50-ish games and that that's just part of the experience with him. So what do you think? What's your reaction to that? Because I, I, I do think that that's been sort of underplayed all along in terms of what Boston was getting and how we look at this Celtics future. I think Kyrie's health is a real factor. Yeah, that's why you got to trade him for a guy who's always healthy in LeBron. I mean, <laughs> like I said earlier, um, no, his his health was a factor. We brought it up last summer, probably got killed for it. Who knows? Uh, you know, it's a fact. I mean, he didn't play in the playoffs. Uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be a situation where his knee is never going to give him a problem ever again in his career. I mean, it's, it's sort of been there. He had lots of health issues even coming into the league and uh, you know, his style of play, uh, you know, I think he takes hits going to the basket and, you know, maybe the downsides in the league will help him a little bit there where he's, you know, not going up against as many giants, but, you know, he's in for a pounding, uh, you know, every single night. Uh, there's no question. So uh, I think his point is pretty well taken. Like we can't just gift him uh, to the Cavaliers because that means they would have not had him or I guess in this scenario, George Hill right. uh, or Isaiah Thomas. So I guess who would their They'd be out there with Calderon as a starting point guard in the finals. I mean, yeah, that team would be worse than their current version. There's no question about it. But I think Vincent's taking this a little bit too literally, and I'm always guilty of that. But 
Vincent, people just want to see Kyrie on the court during the playoffs. Yep. That's all it is. That's all it is. If Kyrie was in that Eastern Conference Finals, it would have been 10 times more interesting. If he was in this Finals for either the Cavaliers or the Celtics, it would be 10 times more interesting. God, it would have been so much fun to see him versus LeBron in the Conference Finals. Like That's really going to agonize me over the next couple of years, uh, what, what we lost. Uh, but I do... The one point that he is hitting on here that I really agree with is there's just been a lot of like revisionist history surrounding that trade and uh, everything that was going on in Cleveland and and the Cavs allegedly losing that trade. Like, I don't know. I mean, Cleveland was sitting there last summer assuming LeBron was going to leave this summer and they and LeBron gave them absolutely no indication otherwise. LeBron did not make a call to Kyrie and that re- relationship was like deeply screwed up as we found out after the fact but has now been kind of like completely swept under the rug because I think both Kyrie and LeBron were at fault for how bad things got. Like Kyrie didn't speak to anyone on the Cavs it, it, it for a couple rounds in last year's playoffs and then LeBron refused to make a phone call to him once all this stuff hit. And it was just like really messed up. And given how bad it was, I thought that the Cavs getting a top 10 pick out of this, like which then gives them the flexibility to either try to add a piece to LeBron uh, and, and, and to a team with LeBron and try to trade for like an established star to extend this window a little bit, or if he leaves to, to rebuild and, have that first step um like it wasn't the worst trade in the world and Kyrie is not the best player in the world like Kyrie's a top 20 player he's not a top five guy and I think the the whole thing has just gotten kind of out of whack yeah I've pretty consistently defended Kobe Altman I mean he was thrown into a terrible scenario I think if there's any fault it's on Dan Gilbert not foreseeing trouble and keeping Griffin around to sort of try to manage the trouble but but even then I mean this is not your typical top-down decision-making structure that's not how the NBA works you know I think that's a complete misnomer I mean the players are the ones who are dictating these moves right like if Kyrie wants out as we've seen he could force his way out if LeBron is willing to go above and beyond to kind of convince Kyrie to stay to make some commitments that'll help you know change his mind then that would have happened and it didn't right so these are player driven decisions I thought the package Kobe got was just fine it went completely south there's no doubt about it you know all of those pieces looked better on paper last summer whether it's crowd or thomas or the pick than they wound up becoming um but well, he got they, them he, they did it for the pick i mean the pick gives them a ton of flexibility even now even even now that it's the, the eighth pick instead of the third pick i mean like that was the centerpiece of that trade and everything else was kind of just like window dressing to try and make it look good and make the Cavs a little bit more competitive this year but like it was clear even then that once Kyrie was out that this was going to be all on LeBron's shoulders this year. It's not like they were going to get like another superstar. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think that he did fine, you know, doing the retool at the deadline too. Like I think, you know, there, there you could say they would prefer to have Dwayne Wade in some of these playoff moments, maybe, but you know, night after night, I mean, Dwayne Wade, is he going to give you enough to make you more competitive against Golden State? You know, I don't think so. He's probably giving you more than Rodney Hood has. Uh, you could hey, make that case. Easy. But Pat, but. Easy. Look, Dwayne Wade was apparently rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. And I don't, I think Roddy Hood has mostly kept to himself, maybe too much for that one game when he refused to go in. But I think he's, he's more Switzerland than Dwayne Wade ever was. 
Yeah, he's a locker room guy. He lets his teammates check in for him. <laughs> exactly. He's going out of his way to do the right thing. Um, so but I'm with you. Lay yeah. off Kobe Alban. This is not his fault. But I do think the whole thing stems from Gilbert's uh, indecision in that GM role and them not having an intermediary that they could really turn to to bring everybody together last summer when they needed to on short notice. And that blew up their entire summer plans. They couldn't go get Paul George. They couldn't do anything else that they wanted to do. Um, you know, they couldn't execute a Kevin Love trade, which maybe would have been a, a good idea at that point. Uh, it all fell apart. And I think to me, it's on the ownership. And and it's I on think, Kyrie and LeBron. Those guys didn't yes, want to be on the same team anymore. For sure. There, there's no question about it. So, uh, yeah, we're on the same page there. All right. Final, final comment here from Joseph, who just wanted to give us a heads up. And he says... Look at the New Yorker helping carry on the conversation that Coffee Shop Kyrie just wanted to start. And it's a link to a long-form New Yorker report on uh, the rise of flat earthers in today's society. And I should add here also, our colleague Rohan uh, is currently watching Wild Wild Country, a month behind the rest of us, but he... In the process, has he remembered that last year around this time, he interviewed Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie told him that he was reading books by the Osho. He had read one, and then he devoured everything that the Osho had written, which is just fucking perfect if, for anyone who's seen that show. Um, I don't know. I just... All of this has, has made me realize how much I miss Kyrie as, as part of the daily NBA conversation. Yeah, really missing his mental pollution. Boy, <laughs> can't can't wait till that's back on our earth. It's just great to know that Coffee Shop is down with the, the Rajneeshi people. And by the way, that, that was right around the time when he was talking about starting a self-sustaining community. So uh, all the dots are connecting now. It, it all makes sense. It does make a lot more sense uh, <laughs> once you realize uh, his major philosophical influence. Um, Andrew, thanks for the chat. You know, we need to get back to work here uh, in advance of game three. That's but right. uh, if anyone else has comments, questions, other Kyrie related trade conspiracy theories or, you know, commune community ideas, <laughs> send them openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And don't forget, Go to Apple Podcasts, search Open Floor. It's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tab five stars. It's just that easy. Hey, Andrew, aren't we the Postmates of podcasts? Yes, we are. It's That's just what that I've heard. easy <laughs> to rate us. Uh, until later this week, I'll talk to you. Go enjoy the minivan, man. Take it out for a spin. Go nuts. I will talk to you Friday morning. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.